The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. It is particularly good to see some of you face-to-face who I have not seen in months now. So it's good to see you. Um, I continue to grieve the fact that we cannot gather as we could before and we weren't doing lists and who could come this week and who cannot come this week and maybe next week kind of thing. Um, But it does remind me that we have brothers and sisters in other parts of the world for whom gathering is always shaped by difficulty and danger. Uh, And, you know, my prayer is that God would continue to strengthen their faith and to sustain their joy, even as he does the same for us. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 11. This morning, as we continue our sermon series, Father the Son, we'll be in verses 12 through 25. Do you have one of those friends or relatives who give way too much preamble and explanation before they start the story that they've set out to tell you? So don't point at people in necessarily, you know, <laughs> unless you've told them this before. <laughs> you, know, that, you know, some people feel this need to frame every story with the backstory, and they're kind of, uh, uh, to preface it with comments that don't make any sense to you because they haven't yet told you the story. Well, I don't want to be that guy today. I don't want to say too much before reading this story in Mark 11. You see, it needs a little introduction. When it walks into a room, everybody notices. So please listen as I have the great privilege to read from God's holy and inspired word in Mark 11, 12 to 25. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, 
Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, I sincerely hope that what I just read was as bewildering and bothersome to you as it has been to me for most of this past week. We should read this kind of passage with eyes and mouths wide open in amazement. What is going on here? Who is this? Why is Jesus behaving this way? As we've read through this gospel, we've become accustomed to Jesus going places and leaving in his wake a trail of healing and restoration, wholeness and peace. But in this story, Jesus seems to leave behind him a trail of destruction and damage. And what does his teaching at the end of the passage mean? On first hearing, it doesn't even seem like a coherent reply to Peter's observation about the poor fig tree. This is a strange passage, a strange story. But it's not just a strange story, it's a controversial one. Commenting on Jesus' behavior in the temple, the scholar Alexander Wedderburn says, Scholarly opinion is more deeply divided over the interpretation of this action than is the case with most other questions presented by the New Testament texts. That's the territory that we've entered. And I definitely felt it this week as I read a bunch of different commentators, and they were going at it, I mean, in their polite way, of course, but in substance, it felt almost as confusing as the temple scene that we've just witnessed. This is a strange story. It's a controversial story, and it's a confusing story. The Bible itself acknowledges that there are sections of it that are more difficult to understand than other sections, and therefore are more liable to being misinterpreted or even twisted. Based on the evidence, Mark has given us one such section here. This passage has proven fertile ground for the growth of some exotic teaching, some of which has become widely accepted. There's definitely a temptation to surrender territory as strange and controversial and confusing as this to those who want to fight over it or camp on it. But we have very good reason for being here and for not choosing to skip over or gloss over this passage. Remember, Mark is writing for us good news. This whole gospel is a life-changing announcement. This means that this story of Jesus cursing a fig tree, overturning tables and teaching in the temple, and teaching his disciples in the aftermath is, in fact, good news of the inbreaking of God's kingdom in the person of the Messiah. So what we need is the help of God's Spirit to hear, believe, and to respond to the good news that is right here in this passage. So let's pray then, and then I'll chart a course through this tricky territory. Holy Spirit, we need you this morning. This is a strange and difficult passage, and we want to understand what you had in mind as you inspired Mark to write these words and to include them in this gospel account. So please be with us. Uh, Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Open our eyes to see Jesus and to rejoice in him. We pray in his name. Amen. So here's how I'd like to do this. Here's how we're going to make our way through this strange country. First, we need to survey the territory. As I've mentioned, there are some challenging spots in this text and some factors in our contemporary context that make it hard to understand and apply this passage. 
Getting the lie of the land and flagging some of those difficult spots is going to help us. Then we're going to dig into the main story. We're going to focus on verses 12 through 21. Finally, we're going to unpack the subsequent teaching in the remaining verses and see how the whole thing speaks to us of our Savior and shapes how we follow Him. So those are our stages. Survey the territory, dig into the main story, and then unpack the subsequent teaching. So let's go then. Survey the territory. As we walk through this text, there are two kinds of challenging spots that we want to be aware of and to flag. The first kind is the kind every reader from every age would be dealing with, the hazards in the text itself. The second is those that arise because of our context, the particular pitfalls that we face as disciples living in Jamaica in 2021. So we want to scrutinize the text itself, but also to think about the ideas that shape how we hear this text. We don't have to take too many steps into this passage before we encounter our first challenging spot. Jesus and his disciples are on the way from the town of Bethany, where they overnighted. You may remember from last week that Jesus entered Jerusalem in this strange and magnificent fashion. And in that, he was announcing that he was a Messiah. He visited the temple, but then they left and went back to Bethany to spend the night. So now they're heading back into Jerusalem. It was approximately a two-mile walk from Bethany to Jerusalem. Jesus, for some reason, is hungry that morning. And spotting a fig tree in the distance, he goes up to it to see if he could find anything on it. But all he could find was the leaves that he saw from a distance. Mark, narrating the episode, points out that it was not the season for figs. Jesus looks at the tree and says, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Wait, what? I mean, we know what's going to happen to the tree later down in the text because we've already read verse 20. And if we're struggling to follow what's going on here, Peter makes it crystal clear in verse 21. Jesus cursed the fig tree. Okay, all right, all right. What is going on? If this story is giving you a slight headache, I hope it will be alleviated by the knowledge that it has perplexed and vexed a whole lot of people over the centuries. That don't help? Well, that's all I can offer so far. We'll keep going. Bertrand Russell was a British philosopher and academic, and he was a noted atheist. And in 1957, he published an essay entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian, in which he picked out this story for particular criticism. This is what he says. This is a very curious story because it was not the right time of year for figs, and you really could not blame the tree. I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. Wow. But it's not just unbelievers who are bothered by this story. The biblical scholar T.W. Manson, uh, he, he made some prickly comments about this story that have become famous among other commentators. He said, It is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season. And as it stands, it is simply incredible. And he seems to make a good point, doesn't he? If Jesus was hungry, why didn't he just command the fig tree to produce figs? That's what fig trees do. You know the term hungry? Not, not, not angry with an H added, but hungry. The combination of hungry and angry. Was Jesus just not himself that day because his blood sugar was low? Was he hungry? 
Yeah, yeah, that, that, I thought of those commercials. Those were wonderful commercials. You're not yourself when you're hungry. You know? You're not you when you're hungry. Uh, but as we'll come to see, there's a good explanation for Jesus' unusual behavior. But this passage doesn't get any better as we go on. Look at verse 15 again in your Bibles. After seeming to terrorize the poor fig tree, Jesus appears to take his tantrum with him into Jerusalem, into the temple. He goes in there and he starts to chase out not just those who were, buy, who were selling, but also those who were buying. He's flipping over tables of those who are doing currency exchange. The temple would only accept the Tyrian shekel because it was more pure than other forms of money in those days. So all other currencies needed to be exchanged before you could give your offering in the temple. And he's turning over the seats of those selling pigeons, which were offerings for people who are particularly poor. And Jesus makes himself a one-man blockade, stopping people from carrying anything through the temple. Now, imagine the faces of his disciples while this was going on. I mean, they probably didn't have any prior warning that he was going to behave like this. I mean, I think about it, and I wonder if some of them were just trying to blend into the crowd, just kind of trying to back off and slip behind some other pilgrim. Whatever happened to gentle Jesus, meek and mild? Mark doesn't tell us that Jesus was angry. He's noted that in situations in the past, but his actions surely were hostile to what was going on in the area before he arrived. What should we make of Jesus' behavior here? I mean, even if he was taking issue with something specific, why didn't he just point it out by teaching? He's done that in the past with the Pharisees. Why turn stuff upside down and make a general nuisance of himself? Some Christians who tend towards being militant are attracted to this picture of Jesus, strident and violent, taking action. And as we watch Western civilization rapidly change into a post-Christian world, it seems like there's a lot to get angry about, isn't there? Is Mark presenting Jesus' behavior as an example for us to follow? When we feel like our rights have been trampled, can we behave like this? Many would be quick to say no to that. But what about when we are convinced that our anger is righteous indignation? Can we then turn over tables? Can we be aggressive in our words and actions? I mean, what Jesus did here was offensive. Does that mean that we have license to be offensive too? <laughs> I hear some fans by there. <laughs> you see, we need to know how to interpret this, or we could be guilty of using Jesus' behavior to justify sinful and arrogant tendencies in our own hearts. But it's still more that's bewildering in this passage. Look at verse 21. The next morning, Peter observes the effect of Jesus' words on the fig tree. It is dead, shriveled from the roots. And he points this out to Jesus. And our text says Jesus answered them, meaning he answered all the disciples, because Peter was speaking on behalf of everyone else. But what an answer. He appears to go off on a tangent like an elderly, absent-minded professor lecturing right after his lunch break. Is there any connection between what has transpired and what Jesus says? And what he says is flat out confusing. What does he mean by moving mountains? Did I ever tell you guys about the time as a child when I tried to move Beverly Hills into Kingston Harbor? No, I haven't told that story. I'm sure I actually attempted it several times from my home in Hope Pastures and just kind of wondered why this is not working. I'm trying to do what the Bible says. Uh, thankfully... I'm now thoroughly convinced that that's not what Jesus meant, and I'm grateful that I did not succeed in moving a mountain that quite a few people would need into the sea. 
Sam and I eventually ended up living in Beverly Hills after we got married, and then I was very grateful that I wasn't able to move it at that time. But even when you grant that what Jesus says about moving mountains is not literal, what are we supposed to do with all that stuff about not doubting and whatever he says will come to pass? When Jesus says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours, is he making prayer a blank check that we can cash in for whatever we desire as long as we banish doubt from our hearts? I mean, he does say whatever you ask in prayer. See, there are ideas embedded in our culture and thinking that are either outright dangerous or need to be handled with care. Those ideas can work their way into our collective thinking in such a way that if you are having a conversation with another Christian or a group of Christians about this passage, they would come to the surface pretty quickly. One of the biggest influences in our context is the prosperity gospel, which seems to come these days in 31 wonderful flavors, some strong and some tremendously subtle. The challenge with prosperity preaching is that many people who have imbibed it have not recognized that that is what they've come to believe. It has become just another conviction alongside other convictions and many of those orthodox Christian beliefs. You know, you can say, I believe that Jesus is God-made flesh and whatever I believe I can achieve. The prosperity gospel, though, is a false doctrine, but it appears to have support in passages like this one. It's impossible to estimate the damage that has been done to the faith of countless people who in the midst of crisis and loss and mourning have been told by others that they did not get what they were praying for because they or even somebody else close to them doubted God. And the truth is, for many of us as we struggle with prayer, it's easy to wonder whether this passage is pointing out our problems with doubt. It's easy to wonder whether God is standing eagerly but helplessly on the sidelines of our life because we've failed to tag him in by praying and naming it and claiming it. Here's why I've taken this route into this text. A passage like this is a good indicator of the pressing need we have to learn to read in context. That's how we learn to navigate the difficulties of a text and identify the erroneous ideas in our own culture and the sinful tendencies in our own hearts. That's how we learn to see Jesus and to see how Jesus is revealed in a text and how it shapes our faith in him. Misinterpretation is so prevalent around us and it is often based on building ideas and teachings and practices on individual phrases and verses in the Bible without proper consideration of their context. So we must learn to read passages like this in their immediate context in Mark, in the wider context of the, this gospel, and in the context of the Bible's overarching story and even its teaching about particular topics in other passages. So we've surveyed the territory and we've flagged some challenging parts of the text and identified some contemporary concerns. Now, let's focus on the story that's told between verses 12 and 21. And feel free to just keep your Bibles open and follow along with me as we talk this through. Let's dig into the main story. So we've already previewed the circumstances around Jesus cursing the fig tree. So let's now seek to understand what's going on here. One of the big questions we need to ask ourselves is, why is Mark telling this story? Why does Jesus appear to attack an innocent tree? There are several things we're going to need to know for us to understand what's going on here. The first is that we need to know something about Middle Eastern fig trees. And I'll gladly receive help here from the scholar Mark Strauss. Fig trees generally produce two crops. The first crop comes in spring on the previous year's shoots. 
Leaves sprout in March or April and produce fruit in May or June. The main crop of figs, which is better in quantity and quality, develops from the current year's growth and produces in late summer or fall. So here's what's going on. When Jesus saw the fig tree in the distance full of leaves, this signaled that it should have already produced something edible. Mark's comment, it was not the season for figs, that the one that so many people stumble over, was therefore an explanation of why Jesus came to the tree to see if he could find something, anything to eat. He wasn't expecting mature figs, but early figs, something that a hungry traveler could make do with. But why such an extreme reaction to the absence of early figs? Here's where you need to pay close attention to how Mark has told this whole story. This is another instance of a Mark and sandwich, the telling of one story within another. He begins with the story of the fig tree, then tells the story of Jesus in the temple, and then returns to complete the story of the fig tree. We've seen him do this before. In each case up to now, the stories are meant to shed light on each other. Each helps to interpret the other. You're not going to understand Jesus' attitude to the fruitless fig tree without considering his actions in the temple. And you're not going to understand the full impact of his actions in the temple without considering the fate of the fruit tree. I've strung together a few insightful comments from the Markan scholar David Garland, who does a great job of explaining how this works. He says, the cursing of the fig tree is an enacted parable. Like the fig tree, the bustling temple is all leaves that seem to attest to its productiveness, but it is deceptive advertising because it has no fruit. Bracketing the cursing of the fig tree around Jesus' action in the temple signifies that the religious center of Israel is similarly judged to be fruitless and ultimately will be destroyed. Jesus wasn't hungry. This was an object lesson for his disciples who were with him, and as the text note, notes, heard what he said. It was so memorable that Peter would share this story years later, and Mark would include it in his writing. The Old Testament is full of agricultural metaphors, and fig trees in particular are commonly used as symbols in oracles of judgment. Often when God wanted to communicate his dissatisfaction with the failure of Israel to bear spiritual fruit, he'd liken it to a failing fig tree or a grapevine. Just as he did to the fig tree after assessing it, Jesus is going to pronounce judgment on the temple when he arrives in Jerusalem. And his assessment has already taken place the previous day. Look back at verse 11 in your text. Last week we recognized that Jesus' visit to the temple on, that, on the first afternoon when he entered Jerusalem wasn't a sightseeing visit but an inspection. Acting now the next day was a deliberate decision to ensure a captive audience for his actions and teaching. Now, let's focus on understanding what Jesus did and said in the temple. First, I want you just to imagine the scene with me. The temple of Jesus' day had been lavishly renovated and expanded by King Herod in, in 20 BC. It was one of the wonders of the world of that day. Around the temple proper, Herod had built a massive ornate court bordered by huge Roman columns. Apparently, these columns were so big that three men would have to hold hands to span them to get around them. There's one area in particular called the Royal Portico, and it could fit over 70,000 people. Herod surrounded God's temple with a monument to his own rule. 
What Mark describes in verses 15 to 18 took place not in the temple proper, but in this outer court that Herod had constructed. And based on what Mark described, this particular era would have felt like a mashup of the Denby Agricultural Show, a cambio, and the New York Stock Exchange. This is where Jesus starts flipping tables over and flipping over benches, disrupting operations, and basically getting in everyone's way. So how should we understand what Jesus was doing? This is where there's substantive scholarly disagreement. My goal is to spare you from the brunt of those arguments and to point you in the direction of what I'm convinced is the most helpful explanation. There are a number of suggestions that have been advanced. Like People suggest that Jesus was protesting or seeking to rectify economic injustices. Or he was advocating for Gentiles to have an area to pray. Or he was purifying the temple from the commercial activity that profaned it. But all of those suggestions share the basic assumption that Jesus was trying to fix something that was broken. If that was his goal, he didn't achieve much more than creating a momentary commotion. Everything would have gone back to normal again right after he left that day. The commentator Peter Bolt highlights what we need to see. So follow this closely. Jesus is not just a reformer of a basically good system that is in need of repair. He is the Messiah, and his arrival spells an entirely new stage in God's plan and purposes for the world. The bridegroom has come, bringing something radically new that cannot simply be squeezed into the old wineskins. The Messiah, God's chosen king, was on the scene. The kingdom of God was breaking in, displacing the old for the new. The Lord of the temple had come, acting in awesome authority. He wasn't trying to tell them to clean up their act. He was painting a picture of the overthrow of, of temple worship and the sacrificial system. Just a few days later, he would prophesy the complete destruction of the temple. The same authority reflected in Jesus' actions is now heard when he speaks. Look at verse 17 in the text. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. He quotes two Old Testament passages in his explanation for his disruptive actions. Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11. But notice this. When Jesus says, my house, he wasn't merely quoting from Isaiah 56, 7. He was stating his claim of ownership over the whole temple enterprise. Mark wants us to see who Jesus is. When Jesus comes to the temple, he acts and speaks like he is the owner. What we're seeing here is Jesus exercising his unique messianic authority and functioning in his prophetic role in bringing God's judgment on the defective temple. Marvel at him in this moment. Recognizing his uniqueness will help us to see that we are not called to imitate everything about him. Think about what he said for a moment. Think about what a den of robbers is. It's a place where those who know that they're doing wrong think they'll be safe. Robbers don't retreat into their den to repent. They presume that the den will provide protection for them despite their deeds. In Jeremiah 7, God promises to destroy the temple because the people were treating it exactly like that. Jesus references that image to speak a similar word of condemnation. Yet at the same time, he speaks of a future destiny that this temple never fulfilled. Contrary to popular expectation of the day, the Messiah did not come to cleanse Jerusalem and the temple from the presence of foreigners. 
The temple was going to be destroyed within decades, but his house would be a place of prayer that included foreigners and outcasts. Look at verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes heard his teaching. They surely did not understand it entirely, but they felt the authority in his actions and his teaching, and they perceived a threat to their own power. But they couldn't act right then because they were afraid of the people who were just marveling. They were astonished and almost bewildered by what Jesus was saying. But the chief priests and scribes right then and there begin to plot Jesus' demise. The next morning, when Mark directs our attention to what happened to the fig tree, any lingering doubts in our minds about the destiny of the temple should be banished. Jesus had pronounced judgment in prophetic demonstration and speech. The end was inevitable. I hope you can now see the spectacular and significant meaning of the cursing of the fig tree and the drama in the temple. But what does Jesus' teaching given in the aftermath of these events have to do with them? So let's unpack the subsequent teaching. Focus your attention with me on verses 22 to 25. I'm going to read them again for you. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. We are 11 chapters into this Gospel of Mark. We've seen that he has arranged this narrative very thoughtfully. So far, his track record is that even sayings and events that appear random at first glance are intentionally placed to communicate gospel truths. We therefore have very little reason to think that he has placed this teaching here with only some loose connection to what has just transpired. As Garland contends, these sayings are integrally related to the context. For us to understand how what Jesus says here relates to the prophesied demise of the temple, we need to understand the magnitude and the dimensions of the impending crisis. In AD 70, when the temple was destroyed, the surviving Jews were plunged into a desperate crisis. One of the questions that haunted them was, how could this happen to God's house? But there was another question that was much more urgent and devastating. How will our sins be atoned for? For centuries, their faith was temple-centered. The temple was where they offered sacrifices that God's law required for the forgiveness of sins. It was where they went to pray. Even when they were far from Jerusalem, think of the story of Daniel, if you know it, uh, when he was away in exile in Babylon, they would face the temple to pray. Jesus, with prophetic performance in the temple, had just signaled its end. And the death of the fig tree witnessed to the power of his words and confirmed his word. If the temple is going to be taken away, what will be its replacement? Have faith in God. That's how Jesus begins his teaching. How will our sins be atoned for? Have faith in God. The temple was only ever a shadow. It was only ever a stopgap. Picture Jesus walking with his disciples and teaching them as they were on their way back to Jerusalem. 
What loomed large in front of them was the Temple Mount. The Jewish historian Josephus stated that the temple appeared to strangers when they were at a distance like a mountain covered with snow. For as to those parts of it that were not gilt, that is covered with gold, they were exceedingly white. Based on the identical prophecies in Isaiah 2.2 and Micah 4.1, the Jews expected the temple mount to be established as the highest of the mountains. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Jesus wasn't making a general statement about faith and prayer. He was predicting that this mountain, the temple mount, not merely the physical structure, but the whole system of temple-centered worship would be cast down into the depths of the sea and that his disciples would be integral to that transpiring as they continued his prophetic ministry. And the language of his statement implies that God is the one who will act to bring about its end. Have faith in God. God would bring to an end what Marshall calls the massive institutionalized power of the existing religious establishment and replace it with a new community centered in Jesus, the Messiah. These disciples needed to trust that what would seem like a catastrophe was, in fact, the hand of God at work manifesting his saving purposes. Within a matter of weeks, these confused and disappointed disciples would be transformed by the death and resurrection of Jesus and by the giving of the Holy Spirit. Peter would stand up in that very city of Jerusalem and proclaim, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That was, in effect, an announcement that the temple was no longer needed. God had already established a new center. Jesus is where he is worshipped. The letter to the Hebrews was written by an unknown author in the circle of the apostles to Jewish Christians who were beginning to have doubts about the sufficiency of Jesus and they were being tempted back towards Judaism. It was clearly written before the destruction of the temple and it systematically dismantles the necessity of temple worship that still persisted. This is Hebrews 10, 11 to 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. How will our sins be atoned for? Our sins have been atoned for in Jesus. Forgiveness is offered through Jesus. Prayer is heard and accepted by God in Jesus. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. In this new era of salvation that God has inaugurated, prayer and forgiveness do not depend on the temple. Garland puts it well. One can appeal directly to the Heavenly Father for mercy and be forgiven. The temple has been passed over as the place where atonement for sins and God's forgiveness transpires. These come from faith in God and forgiveness of others, which is within reach of anyone, anywhere. Trust in God. Mark wants all disciples to understand that because of Jesus, we can approach God in faith, confident that he will answer our prayers. 
He has granted us a way to come to Him, and He wants us to bring all our requests to Him. In other places in the Scriptures, the loving boundaries that God has set on our prayers are taught. But in this context, Mark wants us to know that we can and we should come to God in prayer as we trust in Him. And He wants us to appreciate that forgiveness is freely given to us with one important condition. In our new relationship with God, who is now our Father. It's very interesting. This is, in fact, the only text in the Gospel of Mark where Mark frames our relationship with God in this particular way. There's a question we ask that we have not fully answered yet. If the temple is going to be taken away, what will be its replacement? One part of the answer is Jesus. But there's more. Remember how Jesus said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? Some years after this day, Peter wrote a letter to Christians living in a, a large and ethnically diverse region in what's now modern-day Turkey. This is what he says to them in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are Jesus' house of prayer. I don't know if we need a more compelling call to prayer than that. We are the place of God's presence, not just individually, but collectively, where He's worshipped and honored and His glory is seen. And that fact brings into focus the weightiness of the last thing Jesus says in His teaching. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. No one should be able to stand before God depending fully on the grace that they have received from God and think that they could withhold that same grace from their brother or sister. Our Father will not stand for that because He loves us. Unforgiveness damages our relationship with God and tears apart what Jesus is building. Grace Family Church, we need to remember this. We've long lost our new church smell by now. The honeymoon is over. Our rough edges are already causing injuries to each other. And they'll continue to do so. Forgiveness is the cement for this house of prayer. It covers the damage and fastens us to each other. We will have great need of forgiveness to keep from falling apart as God builds this church. That was quite a journey through difficult territory. And I would understand if you have questions. But I trust that now you have a better understanding of how this passage fits together, a greater appreciation for the massive work that Jesus accomplished to bring you to God, and a greater conviction about what Jesus is calling you to as you follow him. Both the cursing of the fig tree and Jesus' dramatic actions and teaching were prophetic pronouncements that the temple, which seemed to be flourishing, was in fact fruitless, and that, the time, that his time was about to come to an end. Jesus didn't clear the temple to reform worship there. He would lay down his life as a ransom for many in a matter of days. He was sending a memorable signal that the time of animal sacrifices to atone for sin was ending. In the wake of his actions, Jesus then instructed his disciples how they, his new house of prayer, centered in him, should approach God in prayer with faith, freely granting forgiveness to each other, even as they gladly received from God their father, the forgiveness they needed. 
Jesus has cleared the way for his followers from every nation to approach God without a temple or sacrifices, but through faith and forgiveness. That's the good news for those who have ears to hear, announcing this strange, controversial, and confusing story. Rejoice in God. Rejoice in your Savior who has signaled the end of the time of our, exclu- of our exclusion by turning over tables and establishing a new covenant by his own death so that we who were far from God could be gathered to him. Have faith in God. Pray to God with confidence this week as you set your heart towards bearing fruit in your life that pleases him. And let's ask God to give us hearts that delight in forgiveness, that count it a privilege to grant forgiveness to our brothers and sisters, extending to each other the grace of our Father in heaven, even as we confess our own need for forgiveness each day. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.